Christ has come, Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. And like this young lady from Moldova shared in this video, he has commanded his followers to to go and make other followers in his name all over the world. And I'm so grateful that many, many in this church are spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ in your spheres of influence in your workplace, in your school, among your friends, among members of your own family, in prisons, in Jimmy Hill Mission, Love Lady Center, say the lost of Shelby County, many in this community hearing the gospel, experiencing the love of Christ because of faithful believers like many in this very church. And I'm also very grateful for what I believe is an increasing desire among many in our church to take this message of the gospel not only into this community but into other places of the world, other parts of the world where the hope of the gospel is desperately needed. And for this reason, we have an opportunity uh, as a church this year and in coming years to invest in a ministry in Moldova. Moldova is a very small Eastern European country, a very poor country in Europe, a place that desperately needs to hear and to see the transformative power of Jesus Christ. And this fall, we will have an initial team going to Moldova to uh, minister there, to explore possibilities for future partnership uh, of serving and sharing and showing the love of Christ uh, with those in Moldova. One of our goals by the year 2020 as a church is to have uh, a mission team and an ongoing ministry connection and involvement in various continents around the world. And at least in the near term, I see uh, our initial European connection being in Moldova. David Brown, many of you know, a member of our church, has uh, been to Moldova, has connections with Uh, A ministry there is the point person for this opportunity from within our church. And he'll be at a table in the foyer after uh, the service if you have questions or would like to follow up uh, with him about this opportunity. But I want everybody to take just a moment and to take out uh, your phone. If you have an iPhone or a Blackberry or a pocket calendar, whatever you keep your schedule on, go ahead and do it. I'm giving you permission to go ahead and take it out. I know that seems kind of odd, you know, taking out my phone in, in church, but I'm telling you to do it here because I want you to make a note of a very important date, a very important opportunity. Sunday, March 15th, three weeks from today, immediately following this service, the 1045 service, we're going to have something in the fellowship hall uh, called Mission Launch. Uh, I hope to be the first of an annual event uh, where we come together as a church family and celebrate and explore mission opportunities for us as a church uh, throughout the course of this year. And if you say it in uh, a real southern drawl, launch, uh, then you might also be reminded that it just won't be, it won't just be uh, a celebration about mission opportunities, but lunch will also be provided free of charge to you. Our only request is that you RSVP with the church office. And uh, please do that absolutely no later than the Monday before March 9th. And uh, I know how uh, Meadowbrook people operate. Don't wait till the 9th. Go ahead and sign up.
today, even if, even if, hear this, even if you don't sense that any of these possibilities uh, are possibilities for you, even if you don't sense that God has provided a way and leading you to go on one of our mission trips this year, simply by nature of being a part of this church and, and supporting Meadowbrook Baptist Church and through giving and prayer and through fellowship and involvement, you are a part of these opportunities. So come and learn about these opportunities. There'll be opportunities to hear about ministry in Moldova and Honduras and Kansas and Atlanta and possibly Thailand, a number of opportunities. So hope that you and your families will mark that day, Sunday, March 15th, uh, and join us uh, immediately following this service for lunch together. But as we think about missions and as we think about the mandate, the call of Christ, and think about lost people in other parts of the world, perhaps a question you might have, a question that we all ought to ask is, is it worth the sacrifice of time and money and energy to go into another context to share the good news of salvation in Christ? I mean, after all, can't these people, somebody turn on the TV or surf the internet or phone a friend or take out a Bible and read everything they want to know about this Jesus. For some, perhaps. The important thing for us to note, though, is many of these, in fact, dare we say, all lost people around the world today are unaware of their need for a Savior. If you don't know that you have a need, then you're certainly not going to take steps to to meet that need. If you don't know that you have an addiction issue, then you're not going to seek out a counselor and take the appropriate steps to overcome that addiction. If people don't know that they're lost on a road leading to suffering, eventually death, separation from an almighty creator, then they're certainly not going to seek out the one who has paid the price for their salvation. Certainly, God's work through Christ on the cross that ultimately has reached into our lives, changing our lives, otherwise we wouldn't be gathered in His name this morning. Christ's work compels us to go and to share the message of hope and salvation and forgiveness and reconciliation and restoration through Jesus with the lost of the world. For if you know Christ, you've repented of sin and trusted in Jesus for salvation, then, then God has entered into a covenant with you, an everlasting covenant relationship where He calls you His own, His people. Scripture tells us that He looks on us as sons and daughters, people of His own family, a relationship that, that came about as a result of God's plans, as a result of God's promise, a result of a promise that God made many years ago, thousands of years ago, when he appeared to Abram, Genesis chapter 17, verse 7, and he said, I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. Folks, God, the God of Scripture has devised a plan, perfect plan, plan of the sovereign God to enter into an everlasting and eternal relationship with a people that he calls his own. And this morning we're going to look at 
that covenant relationship and what it means to walk by faith in the God of Scripture in light of that covenant relationship from Genesis chapter 17. And would invite you to open up your Bibles and look with me at God's Word at Genesis chapter 17, where we'll see this morning that God requires faithful obedience from His sanctified covenant people. God requires faithful obedience from His sanctified covenant people. Now what in the world does that mean? We're going to look at it together this morning from Genesis chapter 17. So look with me at Genesis 17 beginning in verse 1. And there God's word reads this way. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Then I will make my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Abram fell face down and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan, where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. Verse 9, then God said to Abraham, as for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, for the generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you For the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household or bought with money from a foreigner, those who are not your offspring. Whether born in your household or bought with your money, they must be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Stop right there for a few moments. A chapter like this certainly sounds and comes across as a bit strange, a bit unusual. What in the world is all this about? Unless you're a Bible scholar or a theologian and you've studied Scripture and you know Scripture front to back, then this whole idea of circumcision and God making such a big deal out of this sounds so strange, so foreign, so So odd, in fact, even a bit uncomfortable. Moms and dads, you go home and kids begin asking you questions that they have not asked you before, then I apologize, but know that you can go to Scripture and say, hey, this is in God's Word, and maybe that can become a spiritual opportunity to talk about faith with your kids. But why does God make such a big deal of this? In Genesis chapter 17, and then much of the Bible to follow. After all, why is this such a big deal? This is the type of question that causes many in the world today to look at the Bible and say, there's no way that this book can be relevant for me. There's no way that God could, could have known what He was asking because, after all, modern medicine says this is not a big deal. This is really a personal preference on the choice of parents. Why 
Why is God making such a big deal out of this? And that's certainly a question that we're going to attempt to answer this morning. Why circumcision was noted in Scripture as a sign of this covenant. But before we do, it's important that we see from God's Word here in the opening verses of Genesis chapter 17 that God pledges His eternal promise to His people. God pledges His eternal promise to His people after 13 years of silence on God's part. At least in the biblical record. 13 years have elapsed between chapter 16 and now Genesis chapter 17. Chapter 16 ends with Ishmael being born through Hagar. Now chapter 17 begins with Ishmael 13 years old. And God all of a sudden shows up to Abram. Begins to state these promises, these things that he is going to do and in return says that Abram must do some certain things as well. And Notice the centrality of, of God in these opening verses. Notice the repetition that clearly emphasizes who he is and what he is going to do. Verse, verse 1, he appears to Abram and says, I am God Almighty. Verse 2, I will make my covenant. Verse 4, he says, this is my covenant. Verse 5, he says, for I have made you, I will make you, verse 6, I will make nations, verse 6, I will establish my covenant, verse 7, verse 8, I will give, and then I will be their God. Clearly, God is the central character of, of these verses. God is the central character of what is taking place here, and he is guaranteeing that the promises that he has made and is making to this Abraham character are going to come about. He is guaranteeing through his word, the assurance of his word, that what he has said will take place will indeed take place. But there are some stipulations for for Abraham and his descendants if they are going to be the recipients of these promises. Verse 1, he says, Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. God commands his covenant people to be faithful. God commands His covenant people, not just Abraham, but all His people, to be faithful to Him. Commands them to walk with Him, to walk by faith in Him and in His promises, to live in light of who He is and the truths of His Word. The idea here for blameless is not, not so much sinless. We know that no one has lived a sinless life other than the Son of God, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, Himself, but the idea is that God is calling His people here, beginning with Abraham, to live a life of integrity, a life of moral uprightness, a life that causes them to to live and act and think and behave differently from the wicked who are around them. God commands His covenant people to be faithful, and we see here that God guarantees His eternal promise by giving the faithful a new status. God guarantees His covenant promise by giving the faithful a new status. Finally, as we've been walking through Genesis, we no longer have to read Abram, but we can say Abraham. And later in this chapter, we no longer have to say Sarai, but we can say Sarah. Because God changes the names of this couple here in order to convey something about who He is and what He is going to accomplish through them. A good bit of debate and questioning over what the name Abraham really really means. But probably it's not the name 
Abraham, the, the meaning of the name Abraham that, that God is getting at here by changing Abraham's name, but rather in the original language of the Old Testament, Abraham sounds very similar to the phrase father of many or father of a multitude. And so by changing Abraham's name, God is reminding Abraham. In fact, God is promising Abraham. God is pledging him by giving him a new name, a new identity, a new status in him, that what he has promised is going to come about, that there are going to be many nations, ultimately, that come from the descendants of Abraham. To carry this over into our context and in our day, this would be like, God's saying to, to Ben, I'll pick on Ben this service, pick on David last service, but God's saying to Ben, Ben, I am going to make you very rich. Pretty exciting, huh, Liz? So no longer are you going to be known as Ben, but you're going to be known as Richie, as a reminder to you that you are going to be rich, that I am going to make you rich. Now, don't, don't go start buying a lot of things on credit because God certainly has not said that that I'm aware of. This is simply an analogy but this carries over. This is what is taking place in Genesis chapter 17. God is reminding Abraham by changing his name of something that he's going to do in Abraham's life. Namely that he is going to give him many descendants, great descendants. It signifies a new status, a new circumstance in the eyes of God, a, a pledge, a reminder of what God is going to do. And this concept should not be totally foreign to us as people of God, as people of the new covenant who have trusted in Jesus for salvation. For we read in Paul's letter to the Ephesians that we were once separate from Christ, right? Excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of promise, like this covenant that we're reading about in Genesis chapter 17. We were without hope and without God in the world, but now, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13, now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. In other words, those who have trusted in Jesus for salvation, recognizing their sin, the rebellion, the shortcoming before a perfect and holy and righteous God and repented of that sin, confessed that sin before God, repented of it and given their life to, to Jesus Christ, have also been given a new status, a new name, a new circumstance in and through Jesus Christ, going from death to life, from, from hopelessness to incredible eternal hope, from guilt to innocence in the eyes of our Maker. And we don't have time to, to read all of it this morning, but let me urge you, let me invite you, go home and read all of Ephesians chapter 2. In light of the new status that we have been given in Christ as a result of the love and the mercy and the grace of God, read Ephesians chapter 2 that tells us all about how the grace of God has compelled him to save us, giving us a new status, a new identity, a new circumstance in and through Jesus, as people of God, as followers of Christ, we need to be reminded often from God's word of what it is that God has done for us. A great way that we can do that is to read and to meditate on portions of God's word like Ephesians chapter 2. So we see in Genesis chapter 17 that God pledges his eternal promise to his people through his word and through giving them a new status. And we also see in Genesis chapter 17 that God requires his covenant people to be set apart with a sign. 
God requires his covenant people to be set apart with a sign. I don't know what you think of when you hear the phrase sign of the times. Perhaps you think of the end times and signs in the world lining up with perhaps the return of Christ or the end of the world. Perhaps you think of any number of popular or famous songs or albums from the 60s and 70s and 80s that used that line. But for now, for this morning, when you hear the phrase sign of the times, I want you to think of the sign of the Abrahamic covenant, the sign of those times, which was circumcision with Abraham and his descendants. Genesis chapter 17, verse 10. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. It's important for us to note as we seek to understand God's word that this sign did not initiate the covenant between God and Abraham and his descendants. The covenant had already been initiated. This, this sign and the carrying out of the sign did not make Abraham acceptable in God's eyes, did not make him righteous before God. We know in the record, in the order of the story, in the order of Genesis, that's already taken place. Genesis fifteen six tells us that Abram believed the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness. So he was already righteous in the eyes of God based on his faith. But this sign, like any sign of any covenant of any times, simply served to remind Abraham and his descendants of the promises that God had made to him. Likewise, it reminded God, so to speak, as if God needed to be reminded of the covenant that he had made with Abraham and his descendants. And it was intentionally, intentionally a sexual sign meant to bring the ideas of faith and reproduction together, reminding God's people in the generations to come that it was ultimately God that grants fruitfulness. Ultimately, it would be God that that would grant the offspring The offspring here that Abraham and Sarah have been waiting on ultimately also would serve as a reminder to God's people of the importance of marriage purity, of faithfulness within the covenant relationship of marriage for the sake of producing a godly offspring. I don't have time to go there and to explore that text this morning, but you might want to make a note of Malachi chapter 2 where Malachi picks up on this idea of the people of God's unfaithfulness The Lord is outraged over this. How can they produce a godly offspring that he has called them to if they're not faithful to each other and they're taking on foreign pagan wives? But even so, this sign, as a physical sign, as an outward sign, was meaningless even in that day if it was not coupled with faith in God. If it was simply an outward act with No faith in God. It was meaningless in the eyes of God. In fact, the very idea becomes a spiritual metaphor, even in the Old Testament, for circumcision of the heart, conveying the idea of spiritual devotion and dedication and faithfulness to the God of Scriptures. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 14 and 15, God is speaking through His Word to Abraham's very descendants and We read that, yet the Lord set his affection on your ancestors and loved them and he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations as it is today. Verse 16, circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. In other words, repent and turn to me in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6. We also read about 
the importance of spiritual circumcision in the eyes of God. Deuteronomy chapter 6, I mean, excuse me, 30, verse 6. The Lord God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart, with all your soul, and live. So already, even in the Old Testament, even the Old Testament law, we see that this physical outward side is meant to convey something far greater. A spiritual devotion to the Lord, ultimately foreshadowing a greater act to come. Skip far to the right. I invite you to join me in Colossians chapter 2. Hold your place in Genesis chapter 17. But Colossians chapter 2, as we pick up on this idea in the New Testament, where Paul writes to Christians, followers of Christ, people of the new covenant. Colossians chapter 2, picking up in verse 9. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity, all the fullness of God lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off When you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Verse 13, when you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Beautiful picture of the gospel and God canceling our indebtedness against him because of our sin by nailing the punishment that we deserve to the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus taking the penalty that we deserve. And did you catch what is conveyed there? It's members of the new covenant, members, spiritual descendants of this Abraham character have placed our faith in Christ and received salvation by the grace of God. Christ has performed a spiritual act of circumcision on us, thereby putting, crucifying, putting off the old self, ruled by the flesh, ruled by me and my, what I want, and calling us to embrace a new life in and through Him. New Testament picks up on this idea elsewhere many times. We don't have time to look at those This morning, but the important thing for us is this physical, outward act that God had required in that day simply foreshadowed a much greater act, a picture, putting off the old self, crucifying the self. The same picture that we see in baptism when we're buried, our old life is buried and we're raised to walk and embrace new life in and through Jesus Christ. And this being the case, we are invited by the word of God, to invite God's spirit to circumcise our hearts. Invite God's spirit to circumcise your hearts. In other words, invite the spirit of God to open your eyes to the message of the gospel. And our sinfulness before God, and our need to repent of an old way of life and to embrace new life, good life, eternal life in and through Jesus, causing us to recognize our sin and open our eyes and giving us faith to follow after Jesus Christ. And though the outward physical sign of that covenant no longer matters, we read about that in the New Testament, this is not a big deal in a physical sense. The spiritual idea remains. And the New Testament communicates that the sole requirement for salvation is circumcision of the heart. Embracing new life in and through Jesus Christ. Similar to what 
what we convey as followers of Christ today when we participate in baptism. An outward act. An outward sign that conveys a spiritual reality in our lives. We also say the same thing about the Lord's Supper. An outward act. Two ordinances that we're called as believers in Jesus to participate in that in and of themselves, if not coupled with faith, just like circumcision, are meaningless. But if combined with faith, if representative of faith, reminding us of the life, the eternal life, the good life, the joy and the hope and the peace that we have through Jesus Christ our Lord. So we see in Genesis chapter 17 that God pledges His promise to His people and He requires His covenant people to be set apart with a sign. Two other truths that I want us to see from Genesis chapter 17 very quickly. We won't spend near as much time on these, but look back at Genesis chapter 17, picking up in verse 15. God also said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you are no longer to call her Sarai. Her name will be Sarah. I will bless her and will surely give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. And Abraham fell face down. He laughed and said to himself, Will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of ninety? And Abraham said to God, if only Ishmael might live under your blessing. Then God said, yes, but your wife Sarah will bear you a son and you will call him Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. And as for Ishmael, I have heard you. I will surely bless him. I will make him fruitful and will greatly increase his numbers. He will be the father of 12 rulers and I will make him into a great nation. But... My covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you by this time next year. When he had finished speaking with Abraham, God went up from him. We don't have time this morning to look at all the details of that portion of Genesis chapter 17. But I think the main truth, the primary truth that we learn from God's word here in Genesis chapter 17 verses 15 through 22 is that the fulfillment of God's promises will be miraculous. The fulfillment of God's promises will be miraculous. As stated last week, God was not torn up or confused or worried when Sarah was aging and still no child. God wasn't thinking of an alternative plan. He knew what He had promised. He knew what would take place. And even though the lack of this promised child through a kink in God's plans in the mind of Abraham and Sarah. It was no surprise to God. This was part of his plan. His promise would be fulfilled in his way and in his time and in a way that only he could get the glory for it. God is a God of miracles. And as people who believe in the God of this book, the God of scripture, we ought to run from false teaching that discounts the miraculous. Run from false teaching. False teaching today that is out in the world today that discounts the miraculous folks. Story after story after story, example after example after example in the Bible speaks and shows that God is a God of miracles. God is a mighty God who accomplishes the impossible in the eyes of the world. Yet there are many false teachers and authors in the world today, speaking in the name of Christianity. They want to hang on to Jesus and His love, but throw out the virgin birth and 
throw out the bodily resurrection and throw out the bodily return of Christ, throw out things like the feeding of the 5,000. And we must not fall into the temptation of picking and choosing from God's word what we want to believe as if somehow we are the authority on what is right. Because the moment we do that, we are discounting the very author of scripture, the divine author of God's word. And we are not following the God of scripture anymore. We are following a false God to suit our own liking. Folks, we must run from false teaching that discounts the miraculous in God's word. Quickly, let's look at the conclusion of this chapter and see how Abraham responded to these promises from God, these requirements from God. Genesis chapter 17, beginning in verse 23. On that very day, Abraham took his son Ishmael and All those born in his household were bought with his money, every male in his household, and circumcised them as God told him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised, and his son Ishmael was 13. Abraham and his son Ishmael were both circumcised on that very day, and every male in Abraham's household, including those born in his household or bought from a foreigner, was circumcised with him. After 13 years of silence from God, The events of this entire chapter, Genesis chapter 17, happened in a single day. God appeared to Abram, made promises to him, required things of him. And Abraham, without delay, without hesitation, on that very day, showed obedience to the commands of the Lord. Church, those who believe God's promises respond with obedience to his commands. Those who believe God's promises respond with obedience to his commands. Faith in the God of scripture. Faith ultimately in Jesus Christ. The one to whom all scripture points. Costs something. Sure, it's by the grace of God. But genuine faith in God causes us to live and to act in a way that sets us apart from the rest of the world causes us to act with obedience to the word of the Lord, to the commands of the Lord. So it should be no surprise when God expects us as his people to to build our lives on things that the world calls crazy. Be no surprise when the God of Scripture calls us to do things and to say things and to not do things and to not say things and to not participate in things because of our faith in him when the rest of the world is jumping right in. Folks, God calls us as his people to be set apart. A calling that costs us. Jesus certainly said, all you who are weary and heavy laden, come to me and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me. Learn from me. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That same Jesus also said, as the choir sang about earlier, if anyone is to come after me, must deny himself. Take up his cross daily and follow me. Following Jesus costs something. Something that 21 Christians in Egypt last week know very well. Far better than we know. We have to pray for our brothers and sisters around the world that are facing deep hardship because of their identification with Jesus. And we also ought to ask ourselves and be encouraged and reminded from them. That following Jesus, no matter the cost, is worth the price. There is great joy in knowing and following the God of Scripture. I want us to conclude this morning by 
asking ourselves, by examining our own faith, asking, what does my faith in God look like? Is my faith in God a God that is, uh, is my faith in God a faith that is characterized, that is demonstrated by obedience to what He says? Whatever He says, I'll do it. Wherever He says go, I'll go. Examine your faith for obedience. Folks, God requires faithful obedience from His sanctified covenant people. May we be a people who are characterized, who are known by faithful obedience to Him. Father, we thank You for this time together this morning. We thank You for the opportunity once again to come together, Lord, with a group of fellow Christians and to look at Your Word. Lord, what what a privilege, what a joy, what an honor. Lord, I do pray that our time together has been pleasing to You, that it's been glorifying to the name of Christ. Lord, I pray that you would continue to lead us and to convict us of sin and to show us any areas in our own lives where we are holding back, where we are not allowing our faith in you to spill over into full and total obedience and surrender to Jesus Christ. Lord, lead us, guide us, change us, shape us, mold us to be more and more like Christ. And it's in Jesus' name we pray and ask these things. Amen. I want to invite